Hello, I'm Katherine Manning, and this is the Empathetic Workplace Podcast, where we talk about how to support each other through the hard times so that we can create workplaces that are healthy, productive, and successful. I'm happy to have with me today Dr. Shauna Springer. Known as Doc Springer in the military community, she is one of the nation's leading experts on trauma, military transition, and close relationships. Her work has been featured on CNN, Business Insider, Thrive Global, Vice, U.S. News and World Report, NPR, NBC, CBS Radio, Forbes, The Washington Post, and Military Times. She's a regular contributor to Psychology Today. As chief psychologist of the Stella Center, she works to advance a new model for the treatment of trauma that fuses biological and psychological interventions. Her newest book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us, brings the worlds of the warrior and those they protect together to shine new light on things that many thought we understood, trust, stigma, firearms, the imploding mind, and connection. Shauna, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Catherine. It's good to be here. So I have just a few opening questions for you. First off, where did you grow up? Sure. I come from Southern California, little beach town down there. And then later made famous, I went to high school at Brentwood Academy. Unfortunately, later made famous when O.J. Simpson, you know, and it was really interesting because people would come and visit us in L.A., you know, friends from out of town. And we'd say, do you want to go drive down the Hollywood Strip? What do you, you want to go see the Getty Museum? And for a while there, you know, people would say, we want to drive by O.J.'s house. Just like, oh, um, there's so many beautiful things in L.A., but I am a native of Los Angeles. Wonderful. And where do you live now? I'm in Northern California now. Beautiful hiking trails up here in the Bay Area. We really love the the culture and can't say that, you know, in the last many months, we've actually been able to enjoy much of the restaurants because of our kind of lockdown situation for the most part. But it is a beautiful place and I'm in Northern California. That's great. It is a beautiful part of the world. What was your first ever job? My first ever job was probably summers working for my father's law firm. And I would go in and I would do tasks like filing things and alphabetizing things and organizing things. And it was fun. You know, I liked his his team and they were all really nice to me. And it just was a sense of, you know, responsibility to kind of do these little tasks, just do them right. You know, I was raised, whatever you get done, do it right. Whatever you're assigned, do it to the best of your abilities. And I think that got me started down that path. But I got to tell you, the, the best thing about that job as well was the soda machine that just like pumped out like free soda all day as a kid. That was like, you know, winning the lottery. That's great. And what a wonderful experience to get to see your father in a work context. I would imagine that was pretty interesting to get to see him in his professional life. Yeah, he's a very um, good at what he does as a trial attorney and um, has done a lot of really important cases, including, you know, taking on big tobacco at different times and uh, working on that class action lawsuit and other, you know, sort of landmark cases in California. So that was the road for me not taken, the road not traveled. That was my plan A. And then I deviated from that path by deciding that psychology was a better fit. I've never looked back. I want to hear about your job now, but I want to do it in a sort of unique way, which I want you to describe your current job using only verbs. So three verbs that would describe what it is that you do now. 
As chief psychologist of Stella, we relentlessly transform the understanding of trauma as a psychological injury, promote insight that the best form of treatment combines biological and psychological approaches, and move people towards healing by applying medicine as a team sport. Wow, that was very impressive. That was really incredible that you could come up with that so quickly. (laughs) Well, it's to me going to be, I hope, the thing that someday people will say, that's what she contributed to the field Mm -hmm. is lives were saved, lives were changed because of the work that Dr. Eugene Lipov pioneered using the stellar ganglion block as an adaptation of a pain procedure that seems to calm the fight or flight system. And that in combination with really thoughtful follow-up therapy, people are getting sustained relief from their trauma and it's changing lives. So it rolls off my tongue because it's the thing that I am passionate about advancing, as well as all of the insights I've learned from the warriors that I've worked with for the past decade. I've had a very special relationship that will always be part of my life with our nation's warfighters and have learned so much from people who have experienced unimaginable traumas and have recovered and become stronger than they ever were before with the right support. Tell me how it was that you got started working with the military. Were you in the military yourself? I wasn't. I wasn't in the military. I'm in that sense very much an outsider. I am somebody that is a very unlikely person in a sense. If you look at me on paper, to have the role of a trusted advisor to service members and military veterans. The Doc Springer thing is one of the greatest honors of my life because that's what they call the medics that they trust in combat war zones. And I'm a psychologist who did an undergraduate degree at Harvard. I've never served in the military. So in a sense, it's just an unlikely pairing, but we find tremendous common value, warfighters and myself, around the common values that we share and the sense of purpose that drives us. Um, And that has been absolutely transcendent of any of the other, you know, different experiences that we came to the table with. And so after you got your degree, did you instantly start working with the military or did that develop over time? No, I wish I could tell you that I had, you know, this really well thought out life plan, but it's just not true. As I mentioned, I thought I was going to go into law school And so I decided to go into psychology, and then I happened to work at the Malcolm Randall VA in Gainesville for a rotation during my internship, and there was just a feeling of these people feel like home to me. There was a recognition, I think, between me and them that this was a good pairing for reasons that it it probably took me years to articulate. I finally kind of put it together a couple years ago on a walk with my sister, thinking about our childhood and the way that we were raised by my father, this trial attorney that I mentioned. It was my mom, of course, too, but really that tone of setting up our childhood as kind of an extended boot camp and pushing us through all kinds of challenges that were highly unusual helped me to develop a set of values that paired well with people who served in the military, even though I have not served in the military. So it took me a long time to really kind of like make sense of why that connection just felt so instinctively good to me. But I think I have clarity on that now. 
Yeah, well, and it sounds like the relationship has been sort of mutual. You have received a lot from the service members that you've worked with, and they've received a lot from you. I'd love to hear more about your book. Oh, thank you. Thank you for asking. So uh, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us, is based on about a decade, a little more than a decade of work with our nation's warfighters, uh, their families, everybody who serves in the military tribe. And it's based on all of the insights that I wish I had known when I started doing this work. I came in, you know, fresh out of my doctoral program. I was a licensed psychologist working in the VA, thinking I knew what I knew and was quickly caught up short with the awareness that there was a deep cultural gap and a trust gap between me and my patients, as there often is with civilian providers and those who serve in the military. And so I had a space of time where I thought, I don't know if I have what it takes to support the people I came here to serve, but decided that I was going to move with intention on figuring out how to build trust, if I could, with the people that I was there to serve. And through an intentional process of growing that trust, I not only felt after some time that it's absolutely possible to develop deep trust with people who have very different life experiences from you, it's also possible to understand the story behind the story about the hidden pain of other people if you build that trust. And through understanding those sources of hidden pain, there is a wealth of insight that developed around the nature of trauma and how we, not just in the military, but how we as Americans can recover from trauma. And that has become the central task for our nation right now. 2000 will always be the year of Y2K for people. 2020, I think, is going to go down as the year of trauma. And my goal is to help 2021 be the year of healing. And so I want to take all of that work that I've done with warfighters who have faced extreme traumas and help people understand the application of that to growth and healing after trauma and to rebuilding trust, which has been so shattered between people in society for many years, even beyond the last four years. This didn't start four years ago. We had a rift in our society that was very old. So there are some very old cancers in our society that need to be addressed. And I hope that we will address that and start on the road to healing in 2021. Will you tell us just some basic terms? So how do you define trauma? Trauma is typically defined in the field of psychology as something that creates a feeling of helplessness or horror. And I think of it as something that fundamentally changes how you see yourself, how you navigate the world around you, this sense of safety you feel in your own body or lack thereof, and how you behave in your relationships that can either maintain a trauma response or put you on a new path towards post-traumatic growth. And what is post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic stress disorder? Well, yeah, 1980, I'll give you a bit of interesting history on that. 1980 PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, was added to the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. That's basically the big book that psychologists and other mental health providers are using to make a diagnosis. And that was a win. That was a win because it was a collaboration mainly between Vietnam veterans and a few brave clinicians who were willing to say, this is real. It's not just in people's heads. This is a real thing. 
And it's not, you know, better classified as schizophrenia or depression or any of these other things that already exist. It needs its own discrete name and understanding. And once that went into the, the DSM in 1980, which was, as you know, so long after the Vietnam War, that was helpful because it, it said it's not in your head. Now, I believe, and Stella is also, you know, very much about converting PTSD into the evolved understanding that it's actually an injury. At PTS, post-traumatic stress, when we're exposed to a stressor, it's actually an injury in the brain and it's not invisible and it's not mysterious. If you have the right brain scanner, you can see it on a brain scan. And so there are precision medicine things that we can do as pioneered by our chief medical officer, Dr. Eugene Lipoff, that will address the injury in the brain. And then the other part of trauma is all the thoughts and behaviors and relationship patterns that maintain the trauma response. So nobody should think that getting the injection and feeling calmer is enough. It only opens up the window of opportunity for us to do the real work. And that's where my book, Warrior, and all of the insights around not just the helplessness and horror, but all these other traumas like survivor guilt, moral injury, cut off grief from losing loved ones that they you know, serve with to combat deaths, to accidents, to suicide. All of that needs to be much better understood and reckoned with directly. And that's where all of my work, I hope, will shift how people are able to heal. Interesting. And so would you say that your book, Warrior, it sounds like, you know, it obviously has a lot of relevance for a military community, for um, service members and those who love and support them. But it also sounds like it has a broader application for anybody who wants to support somebody who um, has been through a traumatic experience. Is that accurate? It does. It absolutely does in many, many ways throughout the book. And in fact, every chapter ends with a section called Universal Principles I Learned from Working with Warriors. So even when I was writing it, based on the warrior trauma experience, I was at every chapter taking the opportunity to show how these principles really develop the understanding of how we deal with trauma as a people. And I'll give you an example or two. So often the first story that we hear as psychologists or mental health providers is not the story we need to understand. We have an assumption right now that people are going to be able to be totally candid and forthcoming with everything that's bothering them when we sit down with them to do an intake. So we give them this questionnaire and then we interview them with this guiding assumption that we're going to learn about their pain, form a treatment plan, and then start getting after it. In reality, the first story you hear is just a test of trust. It's a test of can I trust this provider to hear the things that are really burning me up with shame and eating me from the inside out that I have never told anyone. So it's only until after we develop that deep trust with that patient or the person we're trying to support, if we're a peer, that we learn the things that really are at the root of their hidden pain and their trauma. And so an example of that might be you know, somebody that says, my roommate died by suicide and he lost his battle to post-traumatic stress. When in reality, what you learn later when you've built the trust is that they had a fight 
and they told the roommate that they were kicking them out and that they didn't want them you know around drinking or making a mess in the house or whatever and then the suicide happened and they feel morally responsible for the death and that's eating them alive but they wouldn't tell you that until many months into building that trust what i want to help people understand is that there are ways to accelerate the building of trust and that your treatment plan or the way you support people outside of a clinical setting must be based on an understanding of their hidden pain. And you won't hear that unless you build that trust with them. When we read about or think about trauma or PTSD, the classic example is a combat veteran, right? I mean, that's what it's kind of, it's, as you said, it's kind of where the term first came from. And I think that people mostly understand it in that context. But I think that trauma is not limited to a military audience. I think it's much more widespread. Yeah. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. It is a widespread problem. It's an American problem. Mental warfare is not a veterans issue. Suicide is not a veterans issue. It's an American problem. And I would say that there's 40 to 50% of the people in this country that are walking around with a dysregulated fight or flight system as a kind of chronic state that they have, they exist in a state of what I call chronic threat response, where they're not sleeping well and their traumatic experiences are unaddressed and pulling them out of what they're trying to focus on causing them to feel distracted, flooded with anxiety at times, with surges of irritability, that state is common. And it is, as you say, not a veteran's issue. There are many people in our society that have had sexual assaults, that have had um, long-term childhood traumas, that have lost homes due to fires, hurricanes, that have lost loved ones due to COVID, this year has been the year of trauma and there's been, there's been racial tension. There's been riots in the streets. There's been a lack of physical safety. There's been frontline responders and COVID positive units that have lost many of their patients, volumes of patients to COVID and other causes. And so this layering of trauma, I think we really have um, a national crisis around trauma that's unaddressed and not being effectively and efficiently addressed by the tools that we have now, because we're not using, we need to use the strongest weapons we have. And to me, that is combining the biological and the psychological and the social together to attack the problem from every angle in a holistic way, and really meaningfully do that to get people to healing. So tell me more about that. So how do you address it through those three approaches? So the biopsychosocial model of assessment is something that's prominent in the field of psychology and other healing professions. And it's, it's a wonderful model that says everything you know, that we struggle with has contributing factors that are biological, that are psychological, and that are social. Those are like the three major, the triad of determinants for the challenges that we face. And that's been a helpful thing for people to assess a problem from multiple angles in a more holistic way. What isn't happening is a treatment approach that's based on that same model. So the biopsychosocial model of assessment would say, don't just assess the problem at the level of like a chemical change or a biological injury. You've got to assess the psychology, the thinking and behavior 
that's shaping a problem. And you've got to look at the social support or lack thereof. That's the social part of it. So we're doing that in a more thoughtful way on the assessment end. But as a great example of what I mean by it's not happening on the treatment side, we are still really fractured in the care that we're providing to patients. And we've got these lanes. We've got people that are in the biological kind of intervention space and then people in the psychological intervention space and then peer support, you know, is kind of seen as a separate thing. The first thing that I started meaningfully combining was psychological and social as a peer support mentor. I formed a team with a peer support specialist when I was working in the VA and we started treating our patients together. And that was a powerful model. It was treating people in a sort of like paired team-based way. And then I found out about this biological intervention, Stellar Ganglion Block, when one of my patients asked me for it. And I went in the operating room and I was there with him and I watched it happen. And I watched him break down with tears of relief. And he said, it feels like someone just took a thousand pound weight off my chest. And then I followed him for months after that. And because he was calm in his own body, the therapy we were able to do on the psychological side took on a whole new traction. And so to me, realizing the biopsychosocial model of treatment means artfully combining elements of all of these three things and nobody owning the patient. The patient is just supported from all angles in a really thoughtful way that combines the best innovation that we have in biological and psychological, and then peer support is also part of that solution. That's what it means to me. So can you walk us through the ganglion block? Because it really sounds like magic to me. Like I cannot understand how this works. For what it's worth, it sounded like voodoo magic to me, as my colleague <laughs> John Okishi would, would say. John is a psychologist that works at Fort Bragg in the special forces community, and he is actively involved with Colonel Jim Lynch, who does the stellar ganglion block there. They formed this kind of effective team that Dr. Lipov, the pioneer of this you know, procedure for, for PTS, has, has done with me, as well as other uh, physicians I've worked with in the VA. I can, I can describe it as an outsider who's not an MD, and maybe that's most helpful because I won't get too, too technical with it. The stellar ganglion block uh, involves injecting an anesthetic, a routinely used FDA-approved anesthetic, into a cluster of nerves in the neck that regulates the fight-or-flight system. It calms the fight-or-flight system and repairs the injury of post-traumatic stress. It doesn't stay in your system. It's not a psychoactive medication. In other words, it's not operating like Prozac or you know, Zoloft or any of the, the psychoactive medications. It is addressing the biological injury in a precision medicine way that allows a person to, again, feel calm in their own body. And from there, there's a window of opportunity for them to really grow with follow-up therapies. Wow. So it literally addresses the central site of the fight-or-flight response in our bodies and calms that down, which then allows for treatment to go forward because we have a calmer response. Is that right? Yeah. You know, I think of it just as a, a bit of a freeway system and the stellate ganglion block cluster of nerves is like the overpass that, you know, the place where all the freeways come together. It's not near the brain, 
not anything to do with an intervention that directly you know injects anything into your brain but it addresses where the nerves have become unhelpfully hyperactive all the time and you can't calm down that's what it, it treats and interestingly you know the fact that no one um, has heard of this in most of the circles I, I move in of psychologists and treatment providers and people that work with trauma is to me evidence that the biopsychosocial model is not fully realized in the treatment of those with trauma. People might have, you know, different ways of addressing things biologically or psychologically, but if they've never even heard of this treatment and it's something that, you know, has been used for over 10 years, Dr. Lipov has treated hundreds of patients. There are providers, I mean, probably over a thousand at this point, I would say civilian and veteran alike. There are people that have treated over a thousand patients in Tripler Army Medical Center at Fort Bragg, at Womack, Walter Reed. These are all military hospitals. And so I think it's kind of like just not hit a tipping point in awareness and people just don't have a lot of intersection with many of the military hospitals and VAs where this treatment is used. To me, it's, it's just a, another thing that we need to be really advancing as part of the solution for meaningfully addressing trauma. Yeah, and let me just make sure I'm understanding. So the, the injection happens, but you've said it's not a permanent thing, you know, that it eventually will sort of fade in the system. Is that right? And so you do it for a while and that frees you up to pursue some of the other treatment options. Is that right? The medicine doesn't stay in the system, but it does address the biological injury. You can get re-injured in the sense of getting hyperactivated and getting stuck there again. If you don't take that opportunity to use the reset to change your thoughts and behaviors. So an analogy for that is if you went on a vacation, you got calm and relaxed and kind of really unwound. <laughs> if you came back and you engaged in, you know, wellness practices that managed your stress and changed maybe some fundamental things about how you set up your schedule or how you navigate your relationships, you would like improve and keep that benefit for a long time. If you came back from that vacation and you dropped back into an incredibly stressful life, your adrenaline would respond. We're you know, not blocking anything, even though it's called the stellar ganglion block. It just addresses the injury and gives people a second shot at getting you know, towards a happy life if they put in the work and maintain positive wellness. If they don't, then you know, a year or two later, six months for some, depending on how stressful their lives are, some people will need a second shot. And the second shot seems to last longer but I will always say, hey, don't depend on the shot. You've got to do the shot and then do the work. And together, that's the best way to get the long-lasting outcomes that you want for your life. I know that people listening are going to want to explore this further. So where would people find out more about the block? Yeah, a great resource is stellacenter.com. S-T-E-L-L-A center, C-E-N-T-E-R.com. What you'll see on there is research on stellate ganglion block, you know, where it's kind of come, you'll see that it's not a new procedure. This is an interesting thing, Catherine, like this procedure that I'd never heard of four years ago has been around since 1926. 
and it's been used for pain procedures. So commonly in the past, it's been used to treat something called CRPS, complex regional pain syndrome, but it's also been used to treat shingles, which is a really painful thing to get as an adult, and phantom limb pain. When people lose a limb and their like nerves are kind of misfiring, the stellate ganglion block has been used as a pain procedure for many years. And so people sometimes haven't heard about it and there's a tendency to kind of think of something that you haven't heard about as new or fringy. It's not new. And there's one study that has 45,000 people in it that tested the safety and efficacy of stellate ganglion block for pain. And that study concluded that, you know, it's a relatively routine, safe procedure. And that was before we used all the imaging techniques that we use now to visualize the injection area. So they use ultrasound to see where the veins are and, you know, where they need to place the injection to have the effect. So it's become even safer since that study of 45,000 people. You know, as we've talked about, kind of the classic example of PTSD as a combat veteran, one of the things I found interesting in an article that you wrote was you said that in your experience, it isn't always the combat that leads to the trauma in the veterans. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. That's one of the greatest myths that many people hold, that it's the things they see and do in war, the horrors of war that create the trauma. We often project you know, what would be traumatic for us onto other people's experience and don't factor in that warriors are wired to serve in the ways that they are. And that for many of them, serving in combat is actually a peak life experience when they feel very close to and interdependent with a tribe of fellow warriors and that they have training to help them uh, with the, the horrors of war piece are actually not as traumatic as people would think, if at all, for some of them. I mean, that doesn't make them sociopaths. That makes them good at their job. That makes them good at the job we ask them to do as our fighting force. And there was actually a study, Catherine, of about 4 million service members that showed that there's no strong, no correlation really to speak of between deploying to a combat zone and suicide. So deployment to a combat zone is not the thing that is uh, central for so many of the warfighters. And that was repeatedly confirmed for me in my practice over 10 years with warriors. That's what my book is about, that there are injuries of war or injuries not of war that are more insidious and more lethal than what we've been focused on as the so-called invisible injuries of war, post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury. Now, PTS is a problem. It can be a definite, you know, source of suicide, but the moral injuries, the survivor guilt, the shame, the traumatic grief, the rage in relationships, all of these are things that can lead to suicidal intent much more centrally than some of the things that we think. And it's certainly not the exposure to combat for many of the warfighters that creates the trauma response. So what is it? Like, where, where do you see it coming from more commonly? Well, you know, survivor guilt, just living when somebody you love, like a family member dies, will reset the entire moral framework of your life. We don't even focus on that in clinical settings. So here's how that can develop. So you're in combat 
and you lose a buddy to combat. And then you later in your life, you struggle with the transition out of the military, which many people do. Many people face an identity crisis. You know, their whole life is thrown into a blender. It's an emotional amputation from the family that they've known for many years. It's very disorienting, destabilizing, and distressing. And then they go back in their mind and they say, that person that died would not have struggled like this. That person was worthy to live and I'm not worthy to live. That person would have held down a job. That person wouldn't have yelled at their six-year-old. And they start to go down this path where they compare themselves with the ghost of the person they lost. And they then feel like they're not worthy to live. And from there, some people can develop the thought that they are the threat to their family's future well-being or safety. And then the warrior ethos can kick in and they are a self-sacrificing group of people. And so the things that work for civilians in terms of suicide prevention don't always work for warriors. We don't understand the unique psychology of warriors by and large, in my opinion, and we're not applying that understanding to our suicide prevention strategies for warriors. So I'd really like to get this set of insights out. So what advice do you have for a spouse or loved one who sees their service member or anybody who they know is struggling, but doesn't open up to them about it, and they're not sure how to support them? What advice do you have for that person? At the risk of seeming bold and self-serving, my advice is read Warrior. Yeah. Because I wrote it for the loved ones that feel on the outside and that don't understand what the nature of the pain is, but live with the effects of it every single day and have their own trauma as a result. It's a terrible thing when you love someone to see that person suffering and not know what the problem is and how to get in there and help. And so the the role I've had in the military and veteran tribe has been one where I'm not their wife, I'm just, I'm their doc. And so they have opened up and shared with me what the nature of that pain is. And a good starting point for those that love them is to understand what I've come to understand through the trust that I hold with warriors. And from there, they have a a foothold in terms of how can I best support them? Do you have your own self-care process or routine that you can share? I know that a lot of people are struggling right now with trauma and it's not, they'll say like, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not a veteran. I'm not a sexual assault survivor or something like that. But a lot of people are dealing with a lot of trauma, just ambient stress all around us. As you've said, this is the year of trauma. So what advice do you have for people on their own self-care and maybe recognizing it in ourselves that, that we are suffering some yeah, if, if people, and I'll share some thoughts here, but if people go to my website, www.docshaunaspringer, D-O-C-S-H-A-U-N-A-S-P-R-I-N-G-E-R.com, there's a tab on my homepage that says coping with COVID-related anxiety, and it's mostly up to date. There's going to be about 40 articles they'll find on there for different media outlets that have a lot of practical advice. I've done town halls. COVID broke and answered, you know, questions from a live audience of 6,500 people with different questions about coping. And, you know, that's on there, that full recording. I've done supportive videos for cities, you know, different cities in the country and kind of sent tapes 
posted tapes on my website about that. And then I've written a ton of pieces, including two recent ones. One was for anxiety.org and it was about stealth anxiety, which is a bit like the concept you just described that there's, you know, there's capital T traumas and there's all of this sort of background stress that is hard to pin down that's affecting many of us nonetheless. And all of my writing includes practical tips that people can do. So uh, the most recent example would be the one that came out. It was titled How to Cope with the Trauma of a Divided Nation, I believe. And to give you some examples of practical things, I really believe that for me and for many people, the strength of our tribe, our connection with the people that we care about, that we trust, that we have in our lives that have our back is a critical protective factor. And so one of the things that I'm doing right now is uh, I'll read you a text I got from one of the Marines in my life who has become a dear friend of mine. He's emailing me once a week, every Thursday. And he emailed me last night and said, it ain't Thursday yet, but since schedules aren't my thing, get off your ass and do something constructive tomorrow. <laughs> and then he sent me a smiley face and a you know kind of thumbs up. We speak to each other very bluntly, which I appreciate, and we support each other fiercely. And I reached out to 10 of my favorite people. Some of them are Marines, some are not, but many of them are, are actually Marines that I care about and have friendships with. And I said, can you email me once a week for the next 12 weeks on this day of the week and tell me to stop running myself into the ground and get out and exercise? And when I get that text, it's just there's no, there's no way I'm not going to do it because I care about these people and they've taken the time and thought about me and supported me. So I'm going to get on my bike and, and take that ride. So that's a really practical way that I've sort of set up a structure of support for myself that I really need right now. That's fantastic. And I do find that self-care is one of the first things that goes when we start to feel stress. We say like, oh, I don't have time to get on the bike or whatever it is. So recognizing that and making a routine to help you through it is fantastic, fantastic advice. I love that you're doing that. Well, to be clear, I'm not the expert in self-care. And uh, I very much identify with that statement. Like it's probably the first thing to go. But I think at a certain point, I realized that this coping, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It was never going to be a sprint. No matter what happens with our country, you know, in the weeks to come, this is going to be a very long road and we're going to need to train for a marathon and have supports set up in place for a marathon. Every runner knows you, you train for the event you're going to run. And I was thinking about this when we first sheltered in place in California, you know, people were saying flatten the curve and it's going to be, you know, if everybody just went inside for like three weeks, we sacrificed. My family and I have not been out for months to try to do our part to protect people around us and make sure that we're not part of the problem of spreading COVID, whether we don't get it or asymptomatic or whatever we have sacrificed. And it's still a continued sacrifice. The COVID numbers are spiking. People are going into hospitals right now. And it's going to be a marathon on this one before we get through this, not a sprint. So I'm just trying to set up the support that I need to, to stay strong and more balanced than I would otherwise. <laughs> That's fantastic. 
I really appreciate all of your time today. You have given us some resources, including websites, as well as your book. I'm going to include in the show notes for this episode links to all of that. So we have your Stella Setter, the Doc Shauna Springer, and then your book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us. Is that available on Amazon and at at bookstores? Yeah, excellent. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. One of my uh, military buddies got it posted on Powell's of Oregon, the iconic bookstore there, which was really fun. They sell it at Walmart, Books a Million online. And I did an audio book that will be coming out, I'm told, December 22nd. The foreword was read by Major Scott Husing, the best-selling author of Echo and Ramadi. He's a Marine. And so I've got that coming, but the book is available now. And thank you for, for your support and for sharing out those links. I'd love to get help spreading the word. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for doing this and thanks for all you're doing to make the world a better place. Again, this is Catherine Manning. If you want to explore these topics further, don't forget to pre-order a copy of my book, The Empathetic Workplace, Five Steps to a Compassionate, Calm, and Confident Response to Trauma on the Job. Special thanks to Selena Porcaro for her help with today's episode. 